0: Hello and welcome to Plain Talking. This edition has something of a literary flavor. We'll hear from the right Reverend James Jones, KBE, former Bishop of Liverpool, whose book, Justice for Christ's Sake, was published during the pandemic. Author Sue Barrow has written a novel about child trafficking, and brother David Jardine will offer some final thoughts about God and motorcars. The Right Reverend James Jones has enjoyed a high-profile public presence and is particularly remembered for his role as Bishop of Liverpool, especially in the long aftermath of the Hillsborough disaster. His latest book takes us into his role as both pastor and advocate for justice. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by the Right Reverend James Jones, who was Bishop of Hull from 1994 to 1998 and then Bishop of Liverpool from 1998 to 2013. From 2010 to 2018, he chaired three independent panels the Hillsborough Independent Panel, the Independent Panel on Forestry, and the Gosport Independent Panel. In addition to being a regular contributor to BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day, he has also authored several books, the last of which is called Justice for Christ's Sake. And this was brought out during the pandemic in 2021. Bishop James, welcome to Plain Talking. Thank you very much, Geth, good to be with you. Thank you. Well, I wonder if we could talk about your book, Justice for Christ's Sake, which as the the title suggests, is about justice and God's justice, and you weave many stories around your own experience, around the theme of, of this justice, with a recurrent use of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke's gospel. She's the one who gives her neighbor, a judge, a really hard time until he gives her justice.
1: And it made me think, why is this theme of justice so important to you? Firstly, because of my calling to serve as Bishop of Hull and then as Bishop of Liverpool. I came face to face with issues of justice and that made me think much more deeply spiritually and theologically about justice. And of course, in Liverpool, it was my involvement with Hillsborough that made me see that the Hillsborough families and survivors were rightly wrestling with the whole problem of injustice. I came to it initially as a pastor. I was invited to preside at the 10th anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster, which was held in Anfield. And in order to prepare for that, I met with the leaders of the Hillsborough Family Support Group, and they extended the invitation to take the service and then told me of the many issues that were outstanding, many of the questions that were unanswered. And as I listened to them, I could see that there was an open wound in the city and further afield and that this would never heal until the families and survivors got to know the truth and found justice for their loved ones who had died.
0: I guess the the word justice probably means so many things to different people. For, For some I guess it conjures up ideas of, I don't know, retribution or punishment. But that's not the way you talk about it, I don't think, in your book.
1: There's a lovely quote uh, from a 4th century Christian from, from North Africa, a man called Lactantius. you probably never heard of him, I've never heard of him, until it was pointed out to me by somebody. And he gave a definition of justice. This is it. The whole point of justice, um, he says, consists precisely in our providing for others through humanity, what we provide for our own family through affection. I think that's a beautiful description of justice. It's a very high bar, but I think that is the justice to which God calls us to aspire. Within the book, in a in chapter on Hillsborough,
0: but it, it crops up in other chapters of the book as well. There's this reference to the widow and the judge and her determination to get justice. And so it's a, like all the parables, it's, it's very evocative and it stays with you. And I wonder what that parable means to you. And, and I would help to you uh, in your work, particularly with Hillsborough, I guess.
1: Yes, and it means a huge amount to me and it's filed in my heart under the title Hillsborough, because every day for three months before we presented our report first to the families and then to the public, I read this parable. And it's about, as you say, the widow coming to a disinterested judge, pleading for justice, grant me justice, she begged. And we're told by Jesus that this judge couldn't care less. He couldn't care anything about God or about people. But because the woman kept coming and was wearing him down, he eventually granted her justice. And I used to think that this was a parable about prayer. Well, it does touch on prayer, but it also touches fundamentally on the desire to live in a fair and just world and the woman simply would not give up until she got justice. And as I read this parable, it just spoke to me of the Hillsborough families, that they too would not give up until they found the truth and until they got justice. The way it impacted on me was that through my engagement with Hillsborough and through my reading of the Bible, every time I saw the word, just or justice in the Bible, it just leapt off the page for me. You know, in the Psalms, it talks about in God's hands are truth and justice. Jesus was chiding the religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, do not neglect the justice and the love of God. And wherever I come across those words or phrases in, in the Bible, they speak so loudly to me about the imperative that we should not only love people, but seek to live in a just and fair world. As I read the chapter on Hillsborough, I
0: was struck by many things. One was that you were heading up this panel of many opinions, many experts, navigating your way through public policy and government and the media. But the thing that came through time after time was not just your concern for the families, but your presence with them. You used the word pastor, and it felt like that. Here was a pastor speaking pastorally and trying to be pastoral with families in the depths of despair. And I wonder, what was that experience like, or how has it changed you, I guess? It must have stretched you to the limits, I would imagine.
1: Interestingly, in the job description for being chair of the Hillsbury Independent Panel, There was no mention of any need for pastoral skills. But in fact, right from the beginning, I was drawing upon my experience as a pastor. And that listening, which is an important part of being a pastor, was absolutely crucial to engaging with the families and the survivors. And and I remember one day, Margaret Aspinall, who was the leader of the Hillsborough Family Support Group, I remember Margaret saying to me after one meeting, she said, Bishop, you know, this is the first time that anybody has really listened to us. This is the first time that anybody has taken us seriously. And I think that says something about the need to be pastoral in such a situation. And it says a lot about the therapeutic value of listening to people and taking them seriously. And at the moment, you know, we uh, are in the midst of a public inquiry uh, into the pandemic. And one of the things that I've said to people who are involved in this is that you mustn't underestimate The therapeutic value of listening to people who have lost loved ones and so the impact that it's had on me is to realize that with these inquiries and inquests it's not just the forensic value of them assembling the evidence and bringing it to court it is also the therapeutic value of listening to people and helping them in their journey of grief and One of the comments I I make in the book is that grief is a journey without destination, and that there is no such thing as closure. I mean, people talk very loosely and even glibly about, oh, they want closure. But if you love somebody, you can't close down on that love when they've died. There's no such thing as closure to love. If you love somebody, you love them, and you will carry on loving them. And when, you know, people have died, There is a journey that you go through, and there are milestones along the way, but it's a journey without destination, and there's no closure to love. Bishop James, I wonder, do you think the families,
0: the Hillsborough families, will ever get justice, or does that remain uh, far
1: off? You will have to speak and listen to the families and survivors yourself to uh, get an answer to that question. The trials are now all over, they are finished. I believe the families felt that they were getting the truth with the report of the Hillsbury Independent Panel and getting to the truth with the second inquest uh, that the panel in effect triggered. And at that inquest, the fans were exonerated of any responsibility for the tragedy, and that's really important to note. And also at that inquest, the determination returned by the jury was that the 96, now 97, were unlawfully killed. And in that sense, truth has been declared. And uh, through that truth, there is a justice. But in terms of holding people accountable, I remember one mother saying to me, well, now that we know that our children were unlawfully killed, uh, who's responsible? and there you will find the families are deeply disappointed that having been told that their loved ones were unlawfully killed that nobody has been held responsible or accountable uh, for those unlawful killings if we move to kind of slightly um to a broader canvas i'm
0: wondering as a as a retired Bishop now, as you survey the church scene, kind of post-pandemic, if you like, it's patchy across the UK, there's some growth in some of the church in some areas, but an awful lot of decline and an awful lot of churches struggling just to come out of the pandemic. What's your sense of the hope of the church, if you like, over the next few years, as we re-engage with mission after quite a brutal few years of the pandemic?
1: I remember shortly after I was appointed Bishop of Hull, I was interviewed by a journalist who said to me, well, he said, Bishop, uh, what would it take to fill the churches again? And I said to him, well, perhaps some global disaster might drive people to their knees and make them come back to church. And of course, we've had a global disaster. And the church, very sadly, closed its doors so that people couldn't come back. Now, I know that decision was made after a lot of consideration. I know it was made in good faith, but I think it was a mistake. At a time when people were feeling the pressure, when they were wondering about life, there was no opportunity to come to the church, to enter a church, and to seek God and to pray. And I think the statistics reveal that people have not come back to church in the same numbers as before the pandemic. And I think we have to think through very radically what our next step should be. I believe that there is a spiritual instinct in everybody, just like there's a moral instinct. I think there's a spiritual instinct. And it doesn't come to the fore all the time, but from time to time it comes to the fore. And as I listen to people, I often hear them say things like, well, actually I do pray and I am a spiritual person, but I don't go to church or I don't feel the need to go to church. And we as the church, the body of Christ, need to think through very seriously how we serve people who are spiritual but don't find church a place that they wish to belong to or a body of people that they wish to belong to. And
0: one of the things within your book, and in fact, many of your other books, there's a real sense of that the church's place in society is on the front line. It's not to retreat or to withdraw, but to be in the places and the spaces where, not just where people are, but where there's pain and injustice and difficulty.
1: I was asked to speak at the 27th anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster at Anfield and I told a story of Reading that parable about the widow and the unjust judge. And I said how I had read it, you know, every day um, for three months. And I paraphrased the story. And I got to that point where the woman had been rebuffed by the judge. Uh, And then I added and spoke very deliberately with great emphasis and said, but she would not give up. And with that, a crowd of some 20,000 people began to stand and applaud. And on the way home, as I was musing and talking to God, I, I was just saying, Lord, how amazing the story that you told 2,000 years ago resonated with people 2,000 years later in that way, with people clapping. And and it just struck me in that moment that the the life and the teaching of Jesus is still relevant to ordinary people 2,000 years later. And somehow, as a church, we've got to recapture that. And to demonstrate uh, that we're interested not in our own survival, but in serving the world that God loves so much that he sent his only son to die for us. And, and that's what we need in our local Christian communities to reach out and to serve people in that selfless way.
0: Well, Bishop James, that's a fantastic place to end. And thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Gethin. God bless you. And you too. Thank you. Justice, for Christ's sake, is published by SPCK. Sue Barrow has published several books for children and young adults. Her latest work, Sold, takes us into the murky waters of modern slavery. Well, I'm joined now by the author Sue Barrow, whose book Sold is soon to be published. At the heart of the plot is a story about human trafficking much in the news at the moment. So Sue, welcome. And yeah. uh, it be great if you could tell us about your book.
2: Okay. Thanks, Gertrude. Well, I think I have to go back to about 2008. So that's 14 years ago when I uh, read an article in, in the newspaper. It was about a family, a professional couple, who had arranged for a girl to come uh, over to live with them, a member of their extended family, and they were promising her a, a better education, a better life, really, than her life in, in Nigeria. But uh, when she arrived, she discovered that she was going to be their domestic servant, if you like, or slave, as it, as it turned out. It's a dramatic word to use, I know, but I think it, it's justified here. So she discovered she was going to be cleaning and cooking and caring for their child and the school that she had been promised to attend never materialized. And what was worse, they were quite abusive towards her, particularly the the woman. And she was trapped in that situation for several years. And although she was not not officially allowed to go out, she she managed to get in touch with somebody at the local library who raised the alarm. and, And thankfully, the police became involved, social services, and she was rescued and they were brought to trial. And the report I was reading was, was about the trial and the, the fact that they had been convicted and uh, were going to spend some time in prison. Well, I was absolutely gripped by this story because for a couple of years before this, I think I'd become aware of something called human trafficking through uh, an organization uh, called Tearfund, Fund, which I uh, subscribed to. And they had written a report about it in in their magazine. And I started to talk to my my children about it because it was child trafficking. So it was particularly highlighted and obviously through this newspaper report as well. My kids didn't know anything about it. They'd never heard of it. It wasn't something that was talked about. There was very little about it in, in the press, but I felt very challenged to think about maybe writing a novel about it. I wanted my own teenagers to be aware of this. And I felt that other people, teenagers, children, you know, adults, yes, definitely, but but also young people needed needed to know about this. And I felt that writing a, a novel, making this the subject of my next story, would be a good way to go about it, to raise awareness. And also, I, I think, a kind of be a call to action maybe for for some young people, reading with information in the book as well about... Lots of statistics uh, around hu- human trafficking. Something like forty plus million people are are caught up in human trafficking. It's est- estimated, and one in four of these is is children. And so you mentioned
0: that. Well, it's several times when we were chatting. You were, you talked about your children and you wanted them to have an understanding of of this. You then said that you you've written this really with sort of teenagers in mind. So I'm I'm aware that this as a genre, if you like, this is kind of young adult fiction. I think that's what it's called. I might be wrong there.
2: Yes, no, that's right. Yeah. So what, what,
0: what motivated you to, to write you know, a piece of work with, I guess, teenagers, young adults in mind?
2: Well, I've been writing for children, teenagers, uh, young adults. That, that market you know, is pretty much covered by children's fiction. And then it's broken up, obviously, as, as older stories appeal to different uh, different, different uh, groups. I had a, a book published um, about a girl who was adopted and felt uncomfortable in her adopted family. And that's going back 16 years now. I think I've always enjoyed writing for children because I feel they're at a developmental stage and the kinds of issues that they become concerned about. Have always fascinated me. I mean, yes, the things like a, a, a girl going through adoption, coping with her family, perhaps really wanting to know what her, you know, what what her her birth parents were like, why she was adopted. That fascinated me, and still does actually. So I re- I wrote that story, and I like I like writing about. Issues, I suppose that that we live with in our society. Uh, I, I I really find it challenging to think about how how young people will will react to the things that they go through. I suppose the issues that they they they, they go through in their lives, and in this particular instance, for my main character coming to this country under completely false pretext, and uh, and then finding that she's to be a slave in her cousin's home, obviously. You know, the initial reactions were ones of shock and horror, acute disappointment, feeling let down by by her family, by her father in particular, but being able to then make some sense of it. She's come from a very poor background. She recognises that something that she can see that maybe her father might have been paid for this and comes to realise in time that he has. So she's coping not just with the disappointment of of not having education and that she was hoping for, but also the people she loved the most have let her down and how does she make any sense of that? And that really is what the the novel is about as well as the, the you know the external uh, goal of uh, of escaping and that's her you know that that's really what the, the book is about as soon as she, you know you have the sort of the inciting incident of discovering that she is to be a slave and then her decision to to, to fight that and it takes her to a number of bad places. I don't want to say too much, <laughs> but it's it's a roller coaster of a ride for uh, for my to my main character Rosa, who is from Albania. So I decided to make my main character Albanian. In the end, there were some issues. I think quite rightly so about portraying Black African lives. So I was advised that that probably wouldn't be the right direction to take. I've been able to have some advice, as well about uh, about life in Albania from somebody living there. And that's been very, uh, very helpful. That's been part of, part of the whole process of, of writing the book, which um, has taken me 14 years. So <laughs> it's a long time.
0: Well, Sue, this it sounds like a cracking read, I must say, and, and the kind of story that is going to draw us in and into the character, into the kind of, of Rosa. Yes. And what she has to face and, and how she deals with it. Yeah. Yes. So when, when's the book coming out, Sue?
2: Well, the book is uh, coming out as an e-book uh, in October. Okay. So it's available on Amazon now for pre-order. And then the paperback early next year, probably February next year. People who are trafficked can be rescued. And um, one of the things I decided to do is I, I discovered there's an amazing organisation called the International Justice Mission which works really very hard to to bring justice for trafficking survivors and then more locally we have an organization called Red Community within Cardiff and they have formed a big part of my my story in terms of writing this book and i was fortunate enough to to become a befriender on their embrace program which is really offering a hand of friendship to young girls, they are mainly young girls who have survived trafficking. So they are known as survivors. They've come through trafficking, they've been rescued and they are settled perhaps you know, in Cardiff and we've been able to um, spend time with them. I was able to have a relationship with with two young women who had survived slavery and have come through it and are able to start new lives. And, and it's been a real privilege to spend time with them playing a very, very small part in in that uh, recovery time.
0: Sold is published by Cadence Publishing. And finally, the Reverend David Jardine wants to talk about his Toyota.
3: My relationship with Toyota cars began in 2014. Up until then, For years, I had been driving Volkswagens, which in both performance and reliability were terrific. But in 2014, when I went to change my car, I went with an open mind. A colleague in the ministry accompanied me. He had a good knowledge of cars. That made a big difference. The owner of the garage showed us a range of vehicles. I think he began with those he was having most difficulty in selling. But eventually he came to a Toyota, which was six years old and did not have many miles on the clock. I liked the look of it, and my friend liked it as well. We did a test drive, and that was very satisfactory. On my friend's expert advice, I decided to buy it. It was the best buy I have ever made. In the last eight years, it has given me great service, very reliable over 50 miles to the gallon on longer drives, and only rarely breaks down. On the few occasions when there was a problem with the car, I sent for the AA. They usually arrived very promptly and did a terrific job. So as a grateful kind of a fella, I always went immediately to ring AA headquarters to thank them for the great service I had received. On one occasion, the young woman who took my call sounded a bit alarmed that I was contacting her about the help I had just received from AA. I think she thought I was going to make a complaint, but I quickly assured her that on the contrary, I was ringing to thank AA for their wonderful service. Then I suggested to her that there must be plenty of people ringing to thank them. No, she said. The only people who ever ring to give us thanks are Irish people. and I don't know whether she meant that or not, or I was just saying something to please me with my Irish accent. But what I do know is that I try to make that a principle of my life. When people do something for me, even at a checkout desk in a supermarket, I make a point of thanking them. That is what we're told to do in scripture. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul gave clear instructions, in everything, give thanks, in everything, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. In Psalm 103, we hear the same message, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. In various other places in the Bible, we're encouraged to praise God regularly and to thank other people when they do something good for us. I have always found that thanking others helps the relationship with them. In the same way, praising and thanking God brings us closer to Him. Praise helps us to take our eyes off ourselves and gets them on a God. That can help to restore peace when we're anxious. I like the story about old Willie. He lived in a lovely seaside town in Northern Ireland called Dee. Willie was always praising God for this and praising God for that. And sometimes people just got a wee bit fed up with him. One day in the middle of winter, Willie was coming down the street and it was raining very heavily. Those were the days when a man would have been a sissy if he had carried an umbrella and Willie was no sissy. He was drenched. A little further down the street there were two fly men, bone dry under a shelter. Behind his hand one of them said to his companion, I wonder what old Willie will have to praise God for today. As Willie came a bit closer this guy shouted up to him, That's a terrible day Willie, isn't it? As quick as a flash Willie quipped back, It is he said, but praise God every day. Won't be like today. Now that's my kind of man, someone who's always looking for the good in every situation and is grateful for it. I think St. Paul got it right. In everything, give thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talking and look out for the next one coming soon. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on the site where you downloaded this podcast. It really helps to make us more visible. Plain Talking is sponsored by the Plain Truth magazine, a magazine of understanding. To find out more, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. Thanks for listening. God bless. See you soon.